So sitting here with you now, I'm very cognizant that we're starting our second 24 hours together. It's our second 24 hours of the retreat. And um, thinking about that, I also feel um, moved to congratulate you for your first 24 hours. And uh, for some of you, you're old hands, and this is pretty straightforward. And for some of you, you're old hands, and it wasn't straightforward. Or you're new to this, and it wasn't easy. And I think that uh, it can be very challenging to uh, engage in a retreat like this, especially the first, first day. As we keep saying here, we talk about the swamps. It said that the first evening's Dharma talk is kind of swampy, too, in that, uh, that uh, people don't laugh at the jokes. <laughs> you laugh at them. <laughs> so uh, I won't tell any jokes. But I do, uh, I do really appreciate the effort made here today. And, and uh, maybe I'm a little bit biased being a teacher of this stuff. But I really feel this is very, very significant work practice that we're all engaged in, you, all you engaged in. Some of you are just scratching the surface of this. Some of you perhaps didn't realize what you're getting yourself involved in. Um, but what you're getting yourself involved in is really, in some, in some ways, is yourself. There's a story of um, the Buddha was abiding, was hanging out in a park. And uh, that day, <coughs> some uh, uh, some local uh, people, uh, nobles, nobility people, came to frolic in the park, to have picnic in the park. And uh, most of the noble came with their spouses, but one nobleman came with um, a courtesan. And uh, they had their picnic and frolic in whatever way nobles do in parks back then. And then they um, apparently they took a nap. And when they woke up from the nap, uh, the courtesan had disappeared, and so had all their jewelry. So they went running through the park looking for this woman, and they came across the Buddha sitting there in meditation. And um, <clears throat> they went up to him and said, Have you seen a woman? And um, the Buddha looked at them and said, What would you rather find, a woman or yourself? And that got enough of their attention, they sat down to listen to what else he had to say. And they forgot about their jewelry and things. So what would you rather find? The perfect relationship or yourself? The perfect job or yourself? The perfect spiritual experience, spiritual high or yourself? The perfect recreational opportunity or yourself? the perfect health, what would you rather find? And I think the premise here is that it's better, you're better off finding yourself <clears throat> because if you find yourself, then you have something to meet all those other experiences with. You can meet the other experiences more fully and completely. Uh, many people have engaged in a variety of things in life and haven't really known who they, they, they themselves are. And so the meeting has been kind of incomplete. People haven't really gotten to know them or perhaps it was somewhat superficial, or the contact. So this practice here is partly a practice of meeting ourselves in a deep way. And, and for some people, that's a surprise. And uh, one of the first lessons sometimes of new people on meditation or retreats 
is um, the surprise to learn that their mind is out of control. And that's the first insight, so congratulations. The, um, and we say that it's better to have a mind, if you have a, if you have a mind that's out of control, it's better to know it than not know it. So usually a tendency is when people know that, that something's amiss, they're struggling or something, oh no, it's a personal failing, this is terrible, it shouldn't be happening. But if it's happening, it's going to happen anyway, you should congratulate yourself for knowing it. It's such a good thing, it's such a monumental thing to know that, to see that, to see that the mind is out of control, it's doing whatever it wants. The mind has a mind of its own. So this meeting with ourselves, and the meeting, when we meet ourselves, however, in some deep way, there's a way in which maybe the self, in the conventional way, also disappears or changes shape. And we meet something that's almost bigger or deeper or fuller than, <clears throat> than um, the conventional self that we have. When the Buddha gave instructions for mindfulness meditation, the first word he gave for that instruction in the Pali language was the word Ida. And this is a very important word in Buddhism. So I want to teach you this one word in Pali. Ida. I-D-D-H-A. It's a very profound, we can consider it sacred thing for Buddhists. Ida. It's evoked. The beginning of practicing. Ida. And just like maybe the Muslims have Allah. We Buddhists have Ida. Pretty good, right? And the Hindus have Rama, and we have Ida. The Jews and Christians have Jehovah or Abba, and we have Ida. Rama, Krishna. So what's this Ida that's comparable to all this, you know, these deities of these other religions? The word Ida means here, here. There's something so sacred, so important, so significant about being here, that you find the sacred here, you find yourself here, here, right here and now, here. And here is so easy to overlook. It's so easy to think that here is not special. There's a Zen story of two monks walking along. And um, one monk says, this would be a good place for a sacred temple. And the second monk picks up a blade of grass, just picks it up and then sticks it back into the ground and says, the temple has been built. You know, it's so simple here, now, this place here, something is where we can find the temple. And so the big task is to be here. And you know, half the work of mindfulness practice, or 90% of the work perhaps, is showing up and being here. And one of the practices that I like doing, especially when my, when my mind is agitated, and my mind is busy with thoughts, <clears throat> is rather than trying to focus on my breath, concentrate on my breath, when that doesn't work, I like uh, doing a very simple practice where I say the word here. Just here. 
And then when I say the word here, that's a prompt for me to notice what is here. And I notice it for a moment, and then I say here again, and notice what's here. And if my mind is agitated, then what I notice here is a mind that's agitated. That's what's happening here. And part of the value for me of saying here is it's a reminder that it doesn't have to be any different. It isn't like I have to look for some secret that's you pull the curtains of reality and find something that's behind what's obvious here and now. Here reminds me, just be present for what's obvious. No need to get anywhere or accomplish something. No need to huff and puff for concentration. No need to control the mind. But rather to, in a sense, open up. <clears throat> in a sense, open up. Oh, this is what it's like to have a mind that's out of control. Feel the energy in the mind spinning around. And as soon as I say that, I'm not immersed in the, that wild mind, the discursive mind. There's a part of me, that's, in a sense, has stepped outside. And notice it. This is what it's like, Mary says. This is what it is like. This is what a busy mind is like. And even though it might seem somewhat <clears throat> maybe uninteresting to notice how things are at the moment, it's a phenomenally powerful act <clears throat> to step out of being immersed, entangled with our thoughts and our feelings and our experience and simply recognizing it for this is what's happening. This is what it's like. So I recommend, you know, if you want to, if you want to do this practice in a very, very simple way um, that maybe overcomes some of the complexity that might arise if you're trying to concentrate on the breath too much, is not working, is you can just settle back and say here and notice what this moment's experience is like, what's happening here, now. And here, <clears throat> at this moment, one of, you'll probably start discovering a lot of the ways in which you relate to here. You might notice that uh, you don't want to be here. Calvin was walking with Hobbes, climbing a branch, having a grand old time, you know, climbing trees. And Hobbes says something like, Calvin says something like, um, yes, this is what people need to do, just really be in the, in the here and now, really present for their experience. This, 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 present moment, this present moment is so full of possibilities and it's so wonderful. And he gives his Dharma talks to Hobbes. Yes, we should just be here. And Hobbes says to Calvin, uh, yes, but uh, it is true you're supposed to be at school right now. <laughs> so, you know, one thing to be here, but do we really want to be here? So, or, I apologize for maybe cartoons. I said I wasn't telling any jokes. Um, Charlie Brown is talking to Linus, and Charlie says, oh, or Linus says to, uh, uh, Charlie says, Oh, you don't think my dad can fix cars? Well, just the other day, we had this loud clunking noise coming out of the car. And, my, my, uh, and, um, and then Linus says, oh, so your dad stopped and fixed it? And Charlie said, no. Um, he just turned the radio up louder. <laughs> so there can be a lot of strategies <laughs> to avoid what's here. 
And sometimes it's not even a strategy. There's just a strong momentum in the mind to be somewhere else, to be in the future, planning, to be in the past, remembering, rehearsing conversations that long, long over, or being in fantasy, or who knows, judgments. And there can be such strong habits that we get pulled into those worlds. And it's really hard to have some quality presence, quality attention to hear what's really here. And when you can't be really fully here, you can't be really fully here for yourself. And to really uh, see yourself, feel yourself, what's happening here with yourself. So as we try to be here, one of the things we'll naturally discover is all the different ways in which we are not here. And that's considered to be really important. Rather than, again, thinking of it as being a failing or a mistake or a very important part of Buddhist spirituality is not attaining the ideals of presence and concentration and compassion, but understanding what stands in the way. And so you have to really see that stuff and stop and look, okay, this is what it's like for me to keep wanting to go into the future, to plan, to really look at that and feel it and see it. And perhaps you'll discover that underneath that planning there's a lot of anxiety. And that's the, the fuel for the planning. Or perhaps there's a lot of remembering going on, a lot of memories. Maybe the fuel of that is some delight, or perhaps the fuel of that is resentment. You know, what's the fuel of these things? And it's, you know, to start plumbing into the depths of this, you know, what's going on is part of this thing of discovering who we are. So here. Now, here, I like to distinguish that there's always two things happening here. In a sense, there's what's happening, and then there's how we are with what's happening. What's happening and how we are. What our experience is and how we are with that experience. And I would suggest that Buddhist spirituality, mindfulness practice, is mostly about how we are even though what we're practice is to pay attention to what is, it's how we are with what is that really is some of the more profound work that happens. You start to notice. So if you're being with your breath, it isn't just a matter of trying to stay with the breath and see the breath and be present for the breath. It's how are you with the breath? Are you tentative? Are you pouncing on the breath? There's a people who uh, jerk their minds around. The mind wanders off into thought. And then notice that, and then we can jerk the mind back, come back, you know, pounce back on that breath, stay there. You know, a mind that's treated that way is not going to be very cooperative. <coughs> so, you know, can there be a different how? It can be a gentle way. Oh, look at that. Here's a mind that's wandered off. This is what it's like. This is, in here and now, there's a mind that wanders off and those kinds of thought. This is what it's like. And then can you just kind of gently begin again with the breathing. The mind, mind that's treated that way will, will be much more cooperative with the practice of what you're trying to do, for the most part. So how are we with the experience? So are we, are we tentative? Are we hesitant? Are we have doubts about what we're doing? Are we committed? Are we interested? Are we aversive to what's happening? Are we desirous of, of something? Are we holding on? Protecting something, we're trying to fend off something, we're bracing ourselves towards something. Um, 
Are we afraid? You know, how are we here, once we're here, with the stuff that's happening here? How are we with the breath? Are we judging things? Do we experience our life through the filter of judgments and shoulds and expectations? You have a, you're paying attention to your breathing and you notice that your breathing is a little bit fast and a little bit shallow. And then you think, this is not cool in California. You know, we're supposed to be this, you know, you know, Esalen culture. We're supposed to have deep, deep, profound breaths, full, relaxed. Otherwise, it doesn't really count. So that's a judgment. So the important thing in mindfulness is to notice those judgments. Oh, there's these judgments and ideas of how it's supposed to be. That's what's happening now, here. Here, this is what it's like to be a person who's judging. This is like what it's like to be a person who has expectations. The leaning forward, the contraction of that. So it's always stepping back in a sense and saying, oh, this is what it's like. This is how, as opposed to staying with the judgment, staying with the expectations, staying with the pushing and trying to make something happen. So how are you? It's a very, very important issue. And the how are you <clears throat> is, is a vast domain. Now, you know, it's possible to go and travel the world. It's possible to go study. You know, knowledge these days seems almost infinite. You can go to universities and study and you know you learn so much about the world out there just once we start studying and becoming interested in the world it opens up the, to an immensity of things to become aware of but when we meet the world we hear a sound see a sight smell a smell touch something have that contact with that world the other side of that contact is this immensity on this side of the contact, there's something which is equally immense, and that's us, the subjective experience. And there's this marvelous meeting that happens of, of what's happening and how we are, because we cannot become aware of anything without our awareness meeting it. So it seems like a simple, obvious thing. Um, you know, the experience of this room that we have here. Such a marvelous room. But it's mediated through our eyes, sense of touch, our sense of hearing. The actual contact of this room all happens within this physiological body of ours. The meeting of this room. And, or to say a different way, if, um, if you have a sensation in your body, it could be pleasant or unpleasant, you might think that the sensation is just kind of, you know, maybe you have a, have a pain, or maybe a mosquito lands on you and you feel the stinging of the mosquito. Whatever sensation you're having, you can only have it if you're alive. The sensation is proof that you're alive. If you have an experience of this room, you can have this experience because you're alive. There's a meeting of your life and the experience. 
And being alive is much more than sensory contact. How we are is part of that huge world that meets. And how we are can shift and change. And as how we are shifts and changes, our experience of this world shifts and changes as well. Because there's such an intimate connection between our sensory experience and who we are, how we are, the world, in some ways, how we see the world and experience the world can shift and change. The world doesn't have to change, but how we are can change, and everything can change in its, in its wake. So as we kind of become aware here, one of the things to become aware of is this whole subjective world of experience that goes on here. And if how is as important as what, or maybe more important in spiritual circles, how is always an issue of now. How you are is always something that happens in the present moment. How you were is another question. How you will be is another question. But how you are always happens here. And so as you connect to yourself here, and are interested in how, what, it, what is this experience here? I'm suggesting it actually opens up to something quite immense. And it might seem at first that it could be shallow or simplistic or uninteresting, but I don't, I don't think it takes too long to begin appreciating that if you really stop to be here and begin looking to see what's here, that uh, deeper and deeper realms of experience of who we are becomes available to us. It can be hard work because there can be such a strong momentum or habit of using our minds in particular ways or having particular values or beliefs that are really kind of so enmeshed that we don't even know they're there. Um, So one of them, for example, is uh, to believe that um, our life is negotiated through our thoughts, through thinking. And that if we can somehow think our way out of our life or think our way into our life or out of our problems, that somehow thinking and moving thoughts around or figuring things out, or that mindfulness is about having a better way of thinking about things. So that means such a strong, almost addiction to thinking and a be- with a belief that this is where life, how life is negotiated. As we start showing up and being present, with time we start discovering there's another whole other way of being present that isn't just mediated by thought. <clears throat> Many years ago, I'll tell the story because Howie's here. Um, uh, this is one of my favorite teaching stories. But uh, many years ago, Howie and I and a few others used to teach at Santa Sabina, a retreat center nearby. And that was a time when um, Howie and a few other teachers like James and Eugene uh, loved the 49ers, San Francisco football team. team. And and back then, in the glorious days, when the 49ers were doing really well, and it happened to be that sometimes these games would happen during the retreat. <laughs> and it got really hard if there was a game that somehow was happening, but overlapping with the time of the Dharma talk. That was really hard. And um, 
But one day, we were sitting there in the teacher staff room watching one of these 49er games. (coughs) Being here and now. (laughs) Or maybe we were here and there through the television. But um, there was a commercial. And as uh, I believe sensible people do, one of the teachers uh, pushed the mute button. And uh, so it was nice. We We talked a little bit. And then um, the teacher who had the mute button when the, when the game started up again didn't, uh, didn't uh, unmute it. And since these people were mindfulness teachers, I figured that they had noticed what was going on. We stopped talking. We were watching the mute, muted game, football game. And uh, what struck me was, uh, so I was curious, curious. This is interesting. You know, let's see what this is like. What's going to happen next? And so I didn't say anything. I didn't nudge. Hey. And, uh, and then at some point, uh, the teacher who had the button pushed the button, and we had the sound come on. And I was struck by how different the experience was of watching the game with the sound versus without the sound. And without the sound, I could kind of follow the game pretty well. These guys, they line up and fall down. <laughs> you know, I could see that. <clears throat> And so every once in a while, some guy would break free, and you could see him running down across those lines in the field. I don't know that much about football, but I could, I could see them running. I kind of felt happy for, happy for him, you know, he's running down. <laughs> <clears throat> but then, unfortunately, some guy would come out of the corner of the TV screen and tackle him, and he'd fall down. Well, that's too bad. But then when the sound came on, the same play would happen, and I would be on the edge of my seat, if not standing up. He's going to make it. Yes. You know, all excited. And, and the, the difference was a lot to do with the commentator, the sportscaster, I thought. That somehow the excitement of the person commentating on the game was part of what pulled me in to the game and got me excited. It was part of the joy of the game. It was a fine thing to do. Or like in, uh, you know, the jokes are not funny, but they're funny because of the canned laughter. Or we're influenced by the mood music. It just looks like a beautiful, beautiful, serene path in the woods. And then we hear the music. Boom, boom. Something's going to happen. Uh-oh. So there's commentary So with the, with the, that has a big impact on us. We can have the experience of the game without the commentary or the experience of the game with the commentary and it affects the mood. So the same way with our own minds. We have commentary in our minds. And often we confuse the commentary. We entangle the commentary with what's actually happening. And we let the commentary influence what our experience is, our, our relationship to what's going on. We have a commentary maybe that interprets things negatively, aversive towards everything, or commentary that's maybe very strongly self-critical, or I'm so unworthy, or commentary about this and that. And we don't see how the commentary is an overlay on top of the experience. And then emotionally, it can affect us how we are with the experience. I can have difficulty staying with my breath, and then I put a commentary over that, I'm a bad meditator. I've been doing this for many years. It should be easier. This is embarrassing. I should never admit it to anybody. And I can feel myself kind of getting kind of, kind of down. Or then I sit down one time and I'm just right there with every breath, you know, just so easy, just gliding along, just clicking. 
So that just, you know, just, that's just concentrate on the breath. That's good, okay. But then, oh, Gil, this is hot stuff. <laughs> you, know, this, you know, this proves you're metal. And I can feel myself, you know, elated. The commentary. And it's really, I find it amazing how much are the thinking and the commentary in our minds can influence our mood, how we feel about things. And so part of mindfulness practice is being here. What is here is to notice and tease apart the commentary, the thoughts from the actual experience. It might not be possible to stop having the commentary. It's hard to find the mute button. But it's possible to tease apart the commentary and recognize the commentary as commentary. I'm just telling myself a story. That's the story, and here this is more of what's happening. And again, if you can step back and see it like that, and not be entangled or enmeshed in it, there's freedom that's possible there. There's ease that's possible at that moment. And there's clarity, there's clear seeing that's very important that can happen there as well. So how are, how are we? Some years ago, <clears throat> when my son was in kindergarten, um, they had this practice of uh, once a week of playing with beeswax and shaping things out of beeswax. And when they got to class <clears throat> that day, to the beeswax day, the beeswax was cold. And so the kids were taught <clears throat> to hold the beeswax in their hands. And they'd hold it for a while and their own uh, body heat would warm up the beeswax. And at some point it got soft enough they could start kneading it. And they'd knead it, work it. And at some point it was soft enough that they would shape it into something beautiful. And when I saw this, I thought, this is a good analogy for meditation, for retreats. Because if you take beeswax, cold beeswax, and try to make it into something beautiful, shape it when it's still hard, the best you'll do is break it. You just crack. If you take yourself when you're hard and cold and try to get concentrated, try to be mindful in some kind of abstract, kind of idealistic way, and force yourself to do that, you, you, know, you might break. The first thing we do, the how is so important, First thing you do is this idea of just kind of hold yourself in the warmth of your own hands. Don't try to make something happen. Don't try to force yourself to become some spiritual person. Don't reject yourself. But rather, some way, use the attention, the awareness, almost like warm hands. So you're going to be here, whatever it's here for you. Simply be aware of it. Hold it in awareness. Even if it seems um, uninteresting or seems painful or seems, you know, whatever it might be, it's such a profound thing to just hold it in awareness. Hold it in your kindness. I liken mindfulness, awareness, to love. And the reason I say that is that I've seen now enough people who said, have said, 
that they weren't seen as children. And it was the same as being, uh, feeling they weren't loved. To be seen and to be loved are almost the same thing, to really be seen. And so to see ourselves, to have this awareness that here, this warm-handed attention, to hold ourselves as we are, to accept ourselves as we are, and just hang. Let the warmth of attention, the warmth of presence, being present. And it's hard to be present, so we have to keep doing it. Remind ourselves here, come back, be here. Be present for this. Use the breath, perhaps, as the anchor to help you stay here, be present for what's here for you. And who knows how long it takes your beeswax to soften. It doesn't matter how long it takes. What's important is that meeting, how you are as you meet your life, meet yourself. So to meet and hold yourself with that kindness and care. And it might be the most important thing you do here is not what you attain. You might not be able to leave here on Sunday and tell your friends about the awesome experience you had. I had this amazing spiritual experience. It was, I got so high. We're not really interested in high. If anything, we're interested in deep. And deep is to make that contact, to be present. And it might be the most profound thing you can do is not the experience you have some high or spiritual thing, but rather that for these days, you just met yourself and held yourself in this kindness. And saw yourself, were present. Saw yourself moment by moment, kept coming back. This is what it's like. Here it is. At some point, you soften enough. You relax enough. There's enough acceptance of this moment here that then you can begin, begin needing the beeswax. And one of the ways to do that is to, uh, again, come back to the breathing and use that massage of the breath, the kneading of the breath, the movement, the expansion and contraction of the body, the, the alternation, the rhythm of breathing. And that rhythm, that wonderful rhythm, the inhalation, exhalation, is like the kneading of the beeswax. It begins to soften and work and one of the things that begins to develop and soften and work and shape is um, the mind, the beautiful mind we have. The mind starts becoming concentrated or still. As the mind becomes concentrated and still, it becomes softer. We become softer. The heart becomes softer. And this heart that's soft, the mind that becomes soft and warm, is a mind that can also be shaped. And so as we do this practice, go deeper and deeper, we're also shaping the mind and shaping it in a sense, in a sense according to its natural contours rather than the contours or the boundaries or the shape of the mind that's put on us by our society or our life experiences or our resentments and grudges, our desires. These can fall away enough that the natural clarity of the mind, luminosity of the mind, softness of the mind, openness of the mind, begins to shine. And one of the beautiful treasures that I hope that all of you someday, someday or have touched is a kind of peace, a well-being that's not dependent on things in the world going the way you want them to go. So that 
things change in the world, things, you know, problems in the world, problems with your things in the world, beautiful things happen in the world, but there's something deeper, some, or, or some ability to be light or free or open or peaceful that's not tied or entangled with the what's. The how you are is liberated from the what. These two aspects of here, the what and the how. And the how you are becomes more and more liberated and freed from all the what's. So that if you have a job or don't have a job, that's what. If you have health or don't have health, that's what. If you have a relationship or don't have a relationship, that's a what. If you have money or don't have money. So all these what's of life, they're important, not to dismiss them or discount them, but to discover something, some way of being here, which doesn't require, doesn't depend on all those what's. here, I would like to suggest that saying here gives you a taste of what mindfulness practice is about. And it gives you a taste, I hope, that it can be really simple. Here, content to be here with what's obvious. You don't have to go looking for something deep, even though I kept using the word deep. You don't have to try to make something happen. You just have to notice what's obvious here. Here, be still, listen, feel, sense, look, to it here. What's going on here? And then how are you with here? Are you at ease with here? Or are you uneasy with here? That's really important to see that. If you're uneasy, can you be present for the uneasiness? Okay, I see my uneasiness. So now let's maybe bring the warm hands to being feeling uneasy. Oh, I can't do that. I hate being uneasy. That's too difficult. I recoil from it. Okay, let's be present for recoiling. What's that like? What is it? What is here? Here. Just really being, making that contact. What is actually going on for you in the simple, obvious ways as you start being present? <clears throat> to um, young men. I think all the stories that have to do with men, don't they? I apologize. Like two young women <coughs> came to the monastery to be nuns. And one of them was uh, came from an aristocratic family. <coughs> very smart, very capable. used to succeeding in the world. And she came to the monastery, and the abbess asked her, what are you here for? 
And she said, to experience the full power and glory, the full power and luminosity of the Dharma. So the abbess said, great. No, the abbess didn't say great. The abbess said, careful what you ask for. So they showed her her place, her room, and as soon as she was kind of showed around, she introduced to the monastery, she ran off to the meditation hall. She was so eager. She knew she was capable. She thought, sure, I can just go to the meditation hall, just sit down and meditate, and I'm so capable. I'll sit down and just, I'm sure I'll get enlightened in no time. And uh, dashed down the hall, came to the shoe rack, took off her shoes, kind of tossed them into the shoe rack, quickly into the meditation hall, sat down, great determination, great zeal, great sense of purpose. And in no time at all, this heat started rising, clarity and luminosity started happening. And she said, this is great, I knew it would work, it's going to happen, I'm getting it. And more and more heat and more and more luminosity, and pretty soon, poof, she went out in a flame of fire. And all that, was left of, all that was left of her was a little bit of ash on the floor. And then Safu. The full power and luminosity of the Dharma. Watch out. <clears throat> so then, the second woman came to the monastery. And she was, um, you know, in these kinds of stories, of course, she's a peasant simple peasant. She comes and the abbess asks her, asks her, what are you here for? And she says, I'm here to see the Dharma in the faces of the people I practice with, in the food that I eat, in the paths that I sweep, in the lettuce that I wash, in the toilets that I clean, in the dishes that I wash. And the abbess said, welcome. And so she came in and she was shown around like the first one was. And when the bell rang for meditation, she went matter-of-factly down the hall and she came to the shoe rack. And she placed her shoes on the shoe rack. And she noticed how she placed the shoes. And she saw that the shoes were a little bit crooked. One of them was a little bit slanted. And she looked more carefully in her shoes. And she saw, these are old shoes. I remember when I had them and they were new. It seemed like it was very only a short while ago that these shoes were new. And now they're... Souls are wearing, wearing through. I bet that my time here in this monastery will go really fast as well. Before I know it, I'll be old here. And she thought about the nuns who were, she'd met earlier in the day who were quite old, practicing sincerely. And she thought about the, how quickly and how changing life is. And then she noticed that on that shoe rack, she had put her shoes so that there was only, sh- only space next to the sh- uh, edge, edge of the shoe rack for one shoe, not two, besides her own. And she thought about the other nuns who were coming to the meditation hall. 
and how to make a little more space for them, she moved her shoes over and straightened them out. And then she went in to sit in the meditation hall and spent a long life very happy and peaceful at that monastery. So, which nun do you want to be? You want to experience the full glory and power of the Dharma as quickly as you can, so you can go on to more important things, probably a long list of things you want to do with your life. Get this Buddhism stuff over quickly. (laughs) Watch out. Pick up our, you'll have to pick up your ashes. Or do you want to see the Dharma, the truth? It's something as simple as how you open the doors to this meditation hall. How you straighten out your cushion after you sat. How you pick up your fork and knives at the dining room. How you place your dirty dishes down in the tubs. How you meet your inhalation, how you meet and exhale. I'd like to suggest that in the meeting, the simple meetings of life, simple things in our life that we meet clearly and fully, that we'll start seeing the Dharma, start seeing our peace and our depth. This is a poem or a song from the Northwest Native American tradition. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and to be known. Listen, the forest breathes, it whispers, I have made this place for you, I have made this here for you. If you leave it, you may come back again simply by saying, here. No two trees are the same to ravens. No two branches the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, then you are surely lost. Stand still. Sit still, walk still, stand still. The forest knows where you are and you must let it find you. Sit still, the body knows where you are and you must let it find you.
sit still. Be here and allow this powerful stranger, this powerful thing of what evolves, what unfolds, what reveals itself here. Let it reveal itself, let it come to you. But do it with some humility and care. Ask permission, some respect. Discover what's here. Use your time at this retreat to discover what is here. The immensity beyond you and the immensity within you. Let's take a minute or so to be still. Here, what is your experience of here? And how are you with what is here? Perhaps by seeing clearly how you are, you can find that place where you're not limited by how you are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.